Hi there. How you doing? Hey, I do want to tell you something that happened to me when I was in the sixth grade. I was but a tender lad. Um, I, I was uh, I was in the sixth grade. Several of my friends bought hunting knives. Now I'll be honest with you, I do not know why, but we a bunch of us, like a bunch of my friends, bought hunting knives. And um, uh, you know, I mean, I grew up in the, the, the mean streets of Brockton, Massachusetts, which may be why. But um, Anyway, we all got on these, this kick to buy these big knives and carry them around. And uh, so I asked my mom if she could buy me a knife. Just kind of an awkward conversation, to say the least. But nonetheless, she did buy me one. Um, it was a little different than the ones that my friends bought. The ones that my friends bought looked like something out of the first Rambo movie. Um, mine uh, looked like toenail clippers. Um, and in fact, it actually did have a nail file on it. And, uh, but it kind of looked a little bit like a knife, and so I was, I was happy with it. Um, and uh, so one day I'm at school, I get into an argument with this guy named Joe Brewer, uh, was the guy's name. And uh, I get into an argument with him, and we decide that we're going to settle things um, at recess, because that's how you do it in Catholic school, like when you're carrying knives, because that's, you know, Catholic school is just rough like that, you know. Um, so we decide we're going we're gonna to take it outside. Well... We take it outside. There's this grass area out by where we used to go to have to have recess. And um, so he pushes me. I shove him something along those lines. And I just fig- I said, I'm going to end this fight. So I pull out my knife. And, you know, it was like this little thing. And so I'm like, you, oh, this is going to end right now. OK, you know, just like that. And, I, and so I was like really upset. And I'm like, do you want me to cut you? I said that to him. And he's like, with what? And I'm like, with my knife. And he's like, um, that's that. he starts laughing. And he says, that's not a knife. And I'm like, yes, it is. Look, it has like the two hooks blade. And he's like, he's like, that's not a knife. That's a bottle opener. And I'm like, well, this will still do some damage, you know. And, uh, and he's like, listen, we're not going to fight today. And uh, so we shook hands. And actually, that's how we stopped the fight. He's was him laughing at me. And uh, and then we so we kind of shook hands and then went over to everybody else. And then he says, hey, Bob tried to stab me with the, with the, with the bottle opener, and uh, I was kind of done with knives after that moment. Now, I tell you that because um, the story we're going to read this morning out of Judges, um, is, which is the book that we're working our way through uh, now, um, has, involves two things. It involves this guy who's left-handed and, and, and a knife. Um, now, can I ask you, how many of you are left-handed? Can I ask you that? Look at that. Look at that. God loves us. Uh, I'm left-handed as well. Um, by the way, just, I'm just telling you this as a public service announcement. 250 left-handed people die every year because they use right-handed things made for right-handed people in a left-handed way. So I share that with you. Next time you're playing catch with your kids and you put his glove on your right hand, just, I'm just telling you, you're taking your life in your own hands. All right? Um, but and, uh, you know what else I learned? This is just because you just, when you're doing research, you just find all these weird things. There's actually scholarships for people who are left-handed. I'm not exactly sure how that, like, went down. Like, you know, we should really help a group that's just really hurting. You know who we should help? Left-handed people. Their world is all backwards. You know what I mean? And it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, how do you even do that? Like, I just want you to know I'm really sorry you write with the wrong hand. And um, um, it's, it's okay, though. You were born that way. Here's some money. It'll make you feel better. And uh, so whatever it is, you know, uh, we're, we're doing all right, though. But here's the reason that I believe this story is really going to resonate with you. It's going to resonate with you the same way it resonates with me. Because God decides to use this guy whose name is Ehud, by the way, and he uses him um, because he's just a regular guy. 
And, and now here's the thing that's really cool about him is that he's from the smallest tribe in Israel, which is the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, so and not only is he from the smallest tribe in Israel, he's from the tribe. He's, he's left handed, which in that culture was frowned upon. In fact, even up until um, just recently, the left hand was considered the sinister hand and uh, in, in our culture. So and, and the other thing, you know, he came from obscurity, but he's just a regular guy from a small area and he comes out of obscurity and it history remembers him as a hero. And the case in point for us to think of it as this is that sometimes we believe that God only uses superstars. And can I just tell you that that's not the case? In fact, I want to tell you that that's actually the opposite of what God does most of the time in scripture. In scripture what God does is he many times takes the most unlikely person and he gifts them and then allows them to do these amazing things in the power of his spirit. And then what happens is they see the work that's done and they say, whoa, this must be God because it surely can't be him. And it's an amazing thing how it works, because, I mean, if you think about it this way, like, right, people are excited because, uh, you know, LeBron James and the big three or whatever, they've come to Miami. And here's the deal is that let's just say while it's unlikely, let's just say they win an NBA championship next season. Will anybody say that was miraculous? That was the work of God himself. Right. And they say it in a British accent, of course. All right, no one will say that. And you know why? Because that's what superstars are supposed to do. But, but if, some, if you had a group of total no-names and they went on to win an NBA championship, we would say that that is something not, that, is, that is you know, miraculous. And that's the very thing that God does. He takes people that are unlikely, and what He does is He calls them and He chooses them and He equips them and empowers them, and then He does a work through them and everyone realizes that the power is of God. In fact, in your notes, and I hope you have your notes because we're going to write all over it and a lot of good stuff we're going to share with you. But here's what 1 Corinthians 1 teaches us. Paul, the apostle, would write, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. See, the question that we're going to answer this morning, looking at the life of this amazing character named Ehud, is what does it take to be used by God? What does it take to be used by God? What does it take to see God work in your life in an amazing way? And what we're going to find is what I believe are five characteristics of, of those who are really used mightily of God. Five characteristics they understand and put into practice that they will, that we will see in the life of this amazing character named Ehud. So we're going to start in Judges chapter 3 in verse 12. And here's what we'll read. It says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gathered himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, or as many of us know it, the city of Jericho. And uh, in verse 14, So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And if you pause there and give me your attention. Now here's the thing, that uh, the first characteristic that I want to share with you of people who are used by God, that we see in these first few verses, and that is this in your notes, and that is if you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. I was flying home from Atlanta a 
couple weeks ago, and I couldn't get the seat that I wanted. Um, and so I usually sit on the aisle so I can spread out a little bit. Then I usually fall asleep and my head kind of goes out into the, the aisle. And you haven't really lived until you've been hit in the head with the beverage cart by the way, which happens to me fairly regularly when I fly. Well, anyway, I couldn't get the seat that I wanted because it was a really quick flight. I was flying up Wednesday afternoon and flying home Friday morning. It was very quick. And um, so what, what happened was is that I, I get to the ticket um, to the desk uh, there at the gate and I say, are there any exit row seats available? And they say, well, no, there's just, um, there's just middle seats in the exit row. And I'm like, eh, I'll take my chances on the, the, the row that I get. And right at that moment, I began an int- a time of intense prayer uh, because the, what, it, what I was praying was, God, please sit me next to two very, very, very skinny people. I mean, like ridiculously skinny, malnourished skinny people. That's what I need. And um, so because the flight was totally sold out. And so I'm there. I get stuck in the window seat. I can't stand window seats, but I get stuck in the window seat. And uh, so I'm thinking and I'm praying, God, I, just, I need to really skinny people to sit next to me. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of like getting all I got all my stuff together and I have my iPad and I have my headphones and I'm just kind of close my eyes for a minute. And then I open them. And as I open them, this really skinny guy is standing right there in my row because I was the first one to get to my row. And I, and I opened him up. I saw that skinny guy and I said, Lord, I believe in the power of prayer. And I'm like, this is incredible. And then and I don't even know how I missed it. But right behind him was his wife. And uh, his wife was, how do I put this? Um, she was humongous, all right? That's kind of the nice way to put it, all right? I mean, and so, and then, but I'm still okay. As long as he goes in first, I'm still okay. Well, he puts their bags up on the top and he closes the little overhead uh, bin. And then he gets out of the way for her to go in. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I used to believe in the power of prayer. And so... She sits down, and so, and, 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 and now, my, I'm not trying to be offensive, but she took up her seat and, and then some, okay? And so I start, like, kind of moving over because it's not that I really had a choice. I was getting pushed, you know, to the window. And I'm, I'm looking. I open up the little window. I'm like, is there room out on the wing? Because it's all, it's all there is. And so I'm, like, really trying. And so I've got my thing here, and I'm, like, I'm kind of like this up against the wall, you know. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of here. And then she's kind of settling in. And then after the, you know, he kind of said, and I'm kind of looking at the guy, right? Because she's like kind of moving around and, you know, getting herself settled. And I'm, I'm looking, and the guy's looking at me like, yeah, dude, that's my life. And I'm kind of like, and I'm looking at him like, dude, please get your wife to move her junk over a little bit. And, uh, and so he's kind of doing that, and then he doesn't really do anything. And then, and then after she kind of settles in, she turns to me and she says, honey, it's okay, you can move towards me a little. And I'm like... In what universe is this? Like, I wanted to explain to her, like, the rule of physics, that two pieces of matter cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And, um, but I felt like maybe that was a little over the top. So instead, I did the next best thing, was I said, no, thank you. Um, and, and so, and, and here's the thing, and then we kind of somehow, I don't even know how, made it home, and it was, but, but here's the thing, I, I tell you all this in, in, in kind of a crazy way, because I want, I, here's the point I want to drive home. Is that's the very same thing that sin does and the th- very same thing that sin wants to do is infringe on your space. And here's, it doesn't do it all at once. You see, when sin wants to like get into your life and start kind of clogging up some space in your life, it doesn't do it all at once. You see, the children of Israel, when the Bible says that they started worshiping other gods, please don't be naive and think that that happened like all in one day. 
Because nobody is serving the true and living God and decides to start serving a false God just from one day to the next. Right? No Christian wakes up and says, you know, I'm going to start worshiping Satan. You know, nobody like, what you know, he's just so stylish with the pitchfork and the red spandex. I mean, it's just, you know, no, nobody does that. Instead, you know what happens? So, there's something you desire. There's something that you want. There's something that you covet. And then that you start trying to figure out a way to get what it is that you want. And if God isn't delivering the thing that you want in a, in a timely manner in which you want it, our heart begins to drift elsewhere. And that's when idolatry comes in. And that's when beginning to worship something else and following something else and giving our heart to something else begins to come in. You see, if you understand who they were worshiping, it will begin to make a little bit of sense. In your notes, I put a, a couple of verses from um, chapter 2 of Judges that I want you to read. Here's what it says. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's a picture of Baal. Um, this is a picture that was taken from the Israeli Museum uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, I was there about 10 years ago, and they were actually doing a whole Canaanite exhibit. And this was one of the main uh, Canaanite gods that were worshipped. The Canaanites were the people that were originally in Israel before um, the children of Israel came out of Egypt and went to dwell into the land. Now, the thing that's missing on this one is that some of the ones that I saw, some of the bigger statues, and then they had some ones that were really small, maybe just the size of like an action figure, um, was uh, what was missing here is, is in some of them he's holding a, a, like a lightning bolt. And the reason is because Baal was the god of rain, the god of thunder, the god of agriculture. And that meant, understand, you're dealing with an agrarian culture. They, their sustenance, their living, everything is coming from the ground. And so because of that, you're praying to God to, to give you rain so that you can cultivate the ground, so that your crops will grow, so your family can eat, so that you can trade and get the things that you need. And this is the God that you prayed to when you wanted your career to go a little better, when you needed some extra cash, when things were a bit tight. But then there was another God that they worshipped. It says they worship Baal and Ashtoreth. Here's a picture of Ashtoreth. Um, and this is, uh, her, this is uh, taken from an, uh, the um, museum in uh, London, which the name of it escapes me right now. Um, but the a Ashtoreth was the goddess of sex and fertility. And Ashtoreth went by many different names depending on the culture. Uh, some cultures called her Aphrodite or Artemis. Others called her Diana or Isis or Semiramis. But she was like all the, the, the idea, this, this goddess of Ashtoreth was spread throughout many, many different cultures uh, in that area. But the point was this, was that if God wasn't delivering in, in a timely manner in which you wanted, they be, would begin to turn to other gods. And here's the thing that happens is that Israel thinks when they come into the land, well, we will never serve another God. And then they have a tough harvest. They get a bad harvest, a tough, uh, a, a lean rain season, and everybody starts lighting a candle for Baal to help them. And listen, this can happen to us. God's not bringing you a husband or a wife as fast as you want. Well, you know, the clubs can fix that. You can find somebody. Now, of course, it's not who God would want you to be with. It's not the person of the caliber that God wants to bring in your life. But sometimes you get to a point where I've had no one for so long that maybe someone, even if it's the wrong someone, is better than no one. 
And see, if we're waiting, we want something and we want God to provide it for us and God hasn't provided it for us, then maybe what we need to do is go into some more debt to get the thing that we want. Even though God hasn't provided the thing for us, we can find somebody else who will provide the thing that we want. And here's the thing that happens. Over 20 times in the scriptures, the Bible just says this phrase, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. In fact, because if we want to be someone that God uses, this is a characteristic that is an absolute must. The Bible says in Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He turned to me and heard my cry. You see, friends, we live in an instant culture. We live in a culture where patience is absolutely unheard of, where patience is a deal breaker. And listen, the de- but the real deal is this, is that if we want to be someone that's used by God, we have to be someone that's willing to wait on what it is that God wants us to do. Well, look at what happens in verse 15 after all this goes on. It says, But the children of the Lord cry, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. And by him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, here's the second thing that I want to share with you about if you want to be a person who's used by God. And here's what it is. And that is what you see as a gift. What you see as a curse might be a gift. What you see as a curse might be a gift. I want to do this little exercise with you. I know a lot of you are taking notes somewhere on your outline. Can you just with your normal writing hand? Can you just write your sign your name? Just sign your name real simple. Now, if you would just do this now, just take your, your pen and put it in your other hand. And sign your name. And you have been instantly transformed into a third grader. How is that? It's like the most awkward thing. I, I did it myself as in preparation for this. It is the most awkward thing. And here's, here's why I had you do this. It's because sometimes we think the ability that we have, whether it's different than the norm or different than we want, means that it isn't any good. Uh, I have a friend, uh, not really a friend, it's a guy that I used to work for years and years ago. Who um, He used to work in uh, the printing business, and one day, you know how printing papers go in, and then there's like these, um, you know, there's these cylinders that, that the paper goes in. Well, one time, he's trying to get some paper out, and he gets his hand caught in between these cylinders, and he ended up losing most of um, his, his right hand, and he was right-handed. And so when I met him, it had already been several years since he had had this accident, and so he had heard that I was left-handed, and so him and I were having this conversation one day, and he was saying to me, you know, like, it must be good to be left-handed because he lost his right hand. He was right-handed, and he had to learn to do everything that he had normally done with his right hand, with his left hand. And so I said, yeah, writing must have been really difficult. He said, writing was a challenge, but that actually wasn't the biggest thing that was a challenge. I said, what was the hardest thing you had to learn to do with your other hand? And he said, brushing my teeth. And I was fascinated by that because he said, oh, you know, the, the, the toughest thing, was, was brushing my teeth. And I said, well, so uh, he said, well, you know, when you go home tonight, try it. And I did. And I nearly died. It was the weirdest thing. I used my, I, I used my right hand. I'm, I almost poked my eye out. And then when I started getting serious, I started like getting like serious into it. One of the, the thing like went into one of my nostrils. It hurt. It was horrible. And, and that's when I realized my right hand is good for two things, plucking on a guitar and holding my watch. That's it. That's it. And, um, now, here's the thing, and because and, sometimes we think this gift that we have is actually, uh, is actually a curse, but it might actually be a gift. You can imagine Ehud. 
he was a guy, he was left-handed, but he was from a tri- the tribe of Benjamin. And if you're not aware, the word Benjamin in Hebrew means son of my right hand. So to be a left-handed guy in the left-hand, uh, to be a left-handed guy in the right-handed club is just a weird thing. So you can imagine him praying like, God, why would you make me left-handed being that we're, I'm in the son of my right-hand tribe? You know, it's just a weird thing. And what he didn't realize is that being left-handed would be the thing that saved Israel. Scholars are divided on one thing, and I, I read, I don't know, I've probably read about 20 commentaries uh, in preparation for these messages that, that were given you um, in, in Judges. And here's the thing. Um, the, the way that the Hebrew is constructed in this verse, um, it, it tells us two things. The way you could, you could say it, uh, like it's translated here in, in the New King James, is that Ehud was a left-handed man, which is a good way to describe it. Another way that it could be translated is that Ehud was ambidextrous, that is, he could use his left and right hand. Another way to translate it is that he was hindered in his right hand. There was something that allowed him not to be able to use his right hand, which is what caused him to to be left-handed. But the issue here for us is, whatever the reason, Ehud's left-handedness is what saved Israel. And the question that we have to really think about is, what gift that you ha- is it that you have that you don't realize is a gift? You think that it's like, it, it, oh man, it just it drives me crazy because when, when I do this, it drives everybody else crazy. But you don't realize that it's a gift that God's given you to serve Him. You see, here's the thing that I've learned about myself over the years is that I have to teach. I have to. Even in non-teachable moments, I have to teach. It drives my friends crazy. It drives my wife crazy. It drives my daughter crazy. Because sometimes... Um, you know, my, my wife will ask me, you know, just simple things like, you know, hey, what time is it? And I'll start talking about time zones and Pope Leo V, the calendar and how he eliminated 12 days. I just start talking about crazy stuff like that all the time. She said, can't you just tell me, can't you just give me a straight answer on anything? Fine, it's 3 o'clock Pacific. You know, so I just do that. Now, when you say Pacific, do you mean Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Daylight Savings? Anyway, I just do this. It's amazing. We're still married. Um, and here's the thing. That, <laughs> and here's the thing. It's just the crazy stuff. But here's so I, I'm, I'm telling you about this. I told you about this flight that I took from Atlanta home. Well, I get to the TSA. Uh, I'm going through security because, you know, TSA is this amazing picture of government efficiency. Um, and so I'm going through security and um, and I'm looking and there's this one line that's got like eight people in it. That's just for employees. And then there's this other line that's, even though they're doing the exact same thing, there's this other line just for, you know, like regular folks like us, and it's taking forever. And so I walk up to one of the TSA guys and I say, hey, are you guys, you guys have like a suggestion box? Or maybe I can just share my suggestion with you. And so I start talking to him and I say, hey, maybe what we can do is we can divide the people, we can change the way that we've got like this, this winding line, that's just totally unnecessary. And if we can kind of just do it like this, we can cut this time in half. What do you think? And the guy looks at me like, I can have you strip searched right now if you don't get out of my face. And so I say to him, I'm moving on. You know, I'm out of here. You know, I just uh, uh, have a nice day because I'm not into that. Um, and, and now here's the thing that happens. Now, this is the thing that's, that's weird because you don't realize. You say, now, now there, there's some of you, and this is so true. When you go to a party, you have to be there until the end to clean up. The thought of you going to a party... And just enjoying the company of other people and then leaving is a mortifying thought. And like most of us are like, yeah, that's kind of what most of us do. But see, there's people 
there's like this weird group of people. And this is what they do. And listen, this is, and, and, and they're like, and you're thinking like, that is so me. I have to stay to the end because I can't even imagine leaving someone with all this stuff to clean up. And you say, and it drives my husband crazy or my wife crazy. It drives my kids crazy because they want to go to sleep or something. And it's like, and it's like a curse. Listen, can I just tell you that's not a curse? That's actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that called the gift of service. That you actually derive life and joy and fulfillment by serving other people and seeing a need and meeting it. So there's other people that have this amazing gift that they just want people to feel welcomed. Like if you're, if you're like at, a, at a gathering and there's one person who doesn't really know anybody, you will spend the whole time talking to them to make sure that they have a good time so that they feel welcomed and they feel like everyone cares that, that, that they're there. And, uh, you know, others of us are like, uh, oh, whatever. And, but, uh, but there's, there's, there's some people that are like, I, I've got to make sure that this person feels welcome because it's how I derive joy and fulfillment. And I just feel like God is using me in that moment. And it drives my family nuts that I do this. And here's what it is. And you think it's a curse sometimes, but it's not. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit called the gift of hospitality. And, and, and the issue really is this. If you want to be used by God, here's the deal. You've got to start using your gifts. You see, listen to what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its many forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You see, here's the thing. If you want to be used by God, you've got to take the gifts that you have and put them in play. And here's the question that comes up a lot of times when I teach on these subjects is that people say, but what if you don't know what your gift is? Pastor Bob, I don't know what my gift is. And here's what I encourage people. You may want to write this down. Do something. Just do something. But what if I do something and I hate it? Write this down. Do something else. It's as simple as that. But what if I do this other thing and I hate it? All right, do another thing. You just keep doing something else until you find this one thing. And I can promise you that all of us are going to find this one thing because God has given all of us gifts and talents and abilities. And all of us, as we serve God, we have this opportunity to find there's this thing that we do that is life-giving to us and that we serve and it doesn't make us tired. It invigorates us. And that's the thing that we need to do because when we find that thing, that's the thing that will be a blessing to every single person around us and also a blessing to us. That's why um, on your connection card, which you filled out earlier, on the back of it, we have this, um, you'll have all of these different opportunities to serve. Now, here's what I would encourage you to do. And you say, well, I'm not really sure which, which, uh, which I'd be good at. Take a guess. Try something. You try something a couple times and then, you, you know, the cool thing about serving here is that it's never a life sentence. Right. You know, we offer parole for good behavior. Um, and so what it means is that you start serving. and You say, well, I tried this and I don't really love it. OK, let's move you to something else, because here's I just want to tell you something. Our goal is never to just start filling spots. Our goal here and the reason we try to continue to multiply opportunities for service is because we want to help you find the thing that you've been uniquely gifted in so that you can serve the Lord to the maximum capacity so that, listen, you might get tired from serving, but you never get tired of serving. And there's a huge difference between the two. All of us get tired from it. 
but we never get tired of it because when we serve, we feel that we're being used by the, that we're the hands and feet of God himself and that it just continues to bless us as we serve other people and we pour ourselves out and we find out that every time we do, we, that God continually fills us up. It's amazing. Ehud is left-handed. A curse in that culture, and that is the very thing that God is going to use to save the people. Look at the story that happens in verse 16. It says, Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged in a cubit in length, and just as an aside, a cubit is 18 inches, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. And so he brought tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. He was the original Jabba the Hutt. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he, went to, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended to him were, went out from him. And Ehud came to him, and now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. And then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And so Eglon stood up. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. By the way, don't you just love how literal the Bible is? It's like this awesome, like Quentin Tarantino type picture that's happening here. Um, (laughs) That the fat closed over the blade, uh, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. Thank you for that. Um, it's great. Uh, then Ehud went out through the porch and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber, which is a nice way of saying he's using the restroom. And so they waited until they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the door to the upper room. Therefore, they took the key, opened them, and there they found their master fallen dead on the floor. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the third thing that's so important. If you want to be used by God, is deal with sin radically. Deal with sin radically. Uh, You see, the thing that you can't do with sin is you can't let it like, you know, it tries to take, you know, you give it an inch, it takes a mile. We talked about that. But what happens, too, is you can't just let it like, ah, you know, just come on in. You can just hang out. You don't want to make it your pet. You don't want to just let it just kind of hang out. Say, oh, this little thing is not going to really do anything. Um, every week, for whatever reason, a lizard gets into our house. My wife is in the first service, and then she told me after the first service, by the way, there's this little lizard in our pantry, and you need to get it. And I, okay, I'll do that when I get home. So if you want to know, what's Bob doing this afternoon? I will be tracking down a lizard. That's going to be my afternoon project. Um, but so, for whatever reason, like a lizard gets loose in our house. And so what will happen is, is I'll find it, I'll grab it, and I'll throw it outside where nature intended for it to be. But every time, because my wife hates these lizards, every time I grab it and I throw it out, my wife is like, you are my hero. What would I ever do without you? And my usual response is, how would you like to repay your hero? little Barry White music. We can do something here. And, uh, and then she's like, and then as I approach her, she's like, whoa, don't touch me, lizard hands. And, uh, and so, well, a few weeks ago, I, I, it's, a, it's a Saturday, and I spent a lot of the day in the garage kind of cleaning some stuff out and throwing some stuff away. Well, because I was in and out, this little frog gets into our house. Now, 
if, if you think my wife hates lizards, sheer terror comes over her if a frog gets near her. Well, and this, this frog, um, little frog, I mean, the thing was like the size of a cashew, all right? It's not a big, like, beast we're dealing with. I mean, it's, you know, like the size of a nickel, all right? And so she, um, she sees this little frog, and it just jumps, like, right, because our uh, garage is our, our little laundry room, and so it kind of comes out of the laundry room into our, the hallway. And that's when she started screaming bloody murder right there. I mean, it was like something out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And so, and then she says, Robert, you've got to deal with this frog. I'll keep the kids safe. As if this frog is going to somehow eat our children. But I don't, I just kind of let that one go. And, and, and I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to me that day. But the next jump that frog took, I, I went like Mr. Miyagi on that thing. And it, that thing jumped and I was like, boom. And I got it. I was like, whoa. I was like a Cuban ninja right there at that very moment. And so I got that thing, and I took it, and I threw it outside. And my wife was so impressed. I will be honest with you, but she was super impressed by that. She was like, you are amazing. I transcended like a hero at that moment. I don't even know what I was after that, that heroism that I was involved in, you know, saving our family from the three-quarter-inch toad. But I took care of it, and then here's what happens. And, and so, and she's and that was like, Robert, that was amazing. This is incredible. And I'm like, how would you like to repay your superhero? And so I kind of walk into her. She's like, whoa, don't touch me, frogger. And uh, anyway, and so it's like, wash your hands, and then we'll talk. And, uh, but th- the point is this. When something like that that you don't want is in your house, you don't mess with it. You, you don't just say, oh, you know, just if you can just hang out in the corner, that'd be okay. You don't make it your pet. Here's what you do. You get rid of it. Now listen, you say, why don't you just kill him? You know what I like to do? I like to get him and throw him outside because I want him to talk to his little buddies and say, you don't want to mess with the guy in there. guy's like a samurai, you know. That guy will mess us up, you know. And so that, that's why I do that because they t- there's a little language or whatever. And so, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. They talk. Don't get me wrong. Now check this out. Let me give you a couple Bible verses. Not in your notes. I just want to write them down real quick. A little like, Three-word Bible verses. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, flee sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, it says, flee from idolatry. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, it says, flee youthful lusts. You see, the Bible tells us to flee, but can I tell you what sometimes we do? We, we flee, and then we leave a forwarding address. We be like, listen, I'm fleeing, but if you want to find me, I'm over here. You know, And it's like, it's not really helping the matter. And, and, and listen, guys, can I just say something? I, I talk to guys and, and, and that, that want to be used by God. You know, they, they want to follow Jesus and be used by God, but keep their collector's edition Playboy magazines. All right? Let, let me just tell you um, that this is, it's not going to work. You've got to take that stuff and you've got to throw it out. And you gotta, you gotta, but they're collectors. They were passed on to me from generations. By the way, you don't pass on porn as an heirloom, just in case you didn't know. And if you do, you need, you need like, Help. You know, this is messed up, you know. Uh, but because, you know, you can't say I'm following Jesus and Hugh Hefner a little bit. Right? This doesn't work. you got to throw that stuff out. Why? Because it's going to kill any opportunity that you have to really be used by God. Because you can't take something like that and just say, well, I'll just contain it in this one spot. It doesn't work. 
You've got to deal with it radically. You've got to deal with it in a way that just devastates it so that you can really walk, from God, hear, walk with God, hear from Him, and allow Him to make a difference in your world. Jesus would say it this way. He would say it in Matthew chapter uh, 5 in your notes. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. But it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know what Ehud does? He takes drastic measures to get rid of sin. He isn't looking to deal with Jabba the Hutt. He isn't looking to make a treaty with Eglon. He isn't even looking to reason with him. He's getting radical about it. Now, let me say this because I think this is an important thing to note. When Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, you do know he's speaking metaphorically. Um, because there, no, I say this because it was probably in about four or five hundred A.D. There was a group of monks um, that decided that 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 was what their issue. You know, like we're lusting, and so you know we're going to pop out our our right eye. And you know what they found it was the weirdest thing that uh, if you have only one eye, you can still lust. Uh, you can imagine there, you know, they were really let down by that. Like, wow, I didn't expect that one. To, to, you know, that was a real shocker. Uh, I'm, you know, and, and, and here's the issue. Uh, the the issue is. Jesus is saying, take radical action against sin. You know what it means? It means if you're downloading pornography on your computer, here's what you do. You cancel your internet connection. (gasps) But everyone has to have an internet connection. I promise you will still live. You need air to breathe. You don't need an internet connection. I promise. You see, if you're like flirting with someone at work that you shouldn't be flirting, here's what you do. Get another job. Oh, but see, I've been there. No, no, no. You take radical action. So that you don't end up doing something that's going to just devastate your family and change your life in a way that you that you'd never want it to happen. It means if you struggle with greed, here's what you do. You become radically generous. If I can um, be real honest with you, um, in the past, when I first became a Christian, that was my sin, was greed. Um, I loved stuff. And I was as stingy as they come. And then the Holy Spirit confronted me on that as a young Christian. He confronted my greed and showed me that the antidote to greed was, was radical generosity. And I'm not just talking about, like, giving to church and all that. And that, that, was, that was the basics. Um, that was, you know, tithing and all that. That, that, was, that was the beginning. And then my wife and I, every year, we've tried to give, um, you know, 1% above that as, as, we've, as we've been married over the years. And we've tried to do that uh, to the best of our ability. But it, it went beyond that. It went now that I, if I go to lunch with someone, I invite someone to lunch, I'll always pay. Because I, it's just, I just, I need to. You see, if, um, if someone borrows money from me, I actually pray that I would forget that I, that I lent them money. Because I just, I don't want to remember. Sometimes people walk up to me like, hey, here's the 20 bucks I owe you. And I'm like, you, I lent you money? First of all, you don't really seem like the kind of character I'd be lending money to. And, uh, and they're like, no, you lent me money. And I'm like, all right, if you say so. And, uh, and, 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 but once again, and so for me, it's just an issue of, the only way that the way that I get away from being that person that I used to be is by becoming radically generous. And um, you see, and I remember and I remember just a, I remember when when the, the spirit of God first brought that to my attention and convicted me with that and confronted me with that. I felt like Ehud. Uh, I felt like Eglon getting stabbed by Ehud. It was like, oh, this is a brutal thing. But then you know what happened? As I began 
to just do the things that the Spirit of God wanted me to do, I began to feel like Ehud stabbing Eglon. And trust me, this is, that's a better end of the knife to be on. But what it takes is dealing with your sin radically. By the way, the only way Ehud actually gets in the door is by being left-handed. Because, you know, like if you're a police officer or someone who just randomly walks around with a gun, um, you, you would, if you're right-handed, you would carry it on your right side. If you're left-handed, you carry it on your left side. In that culture, when you had a, a knife and a knife of that size, you would carry it on your opposite of your dominant hand. So what would happen is, and this is, this is, this is um, something that's talked about in this culture at this time, is that guards to people of importance got lazy. And so what they would do is they would just pat down your left side because if you were right-handed, you would keep your, uh, a knife or whatever on your, on your left side and you would take it and have your dominant hand. Well, Ehud walks up. He's got the tribute that he's going to bring to the king. And they just pat down his left side, not even realizing that he's got an 18-inch dagger fastened to his right side. And he walks in. And the very thing that he, didn't, that he thought was a curse ended up being a blessing. And God used him tremendously as he dealt with sin radically. And that issue changes the entire direction of the nation. Look at what happens in these last few verses in verse 26. It says, But Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone uh, images and, pa- and escaped to Syria. Or to, 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 to Syrah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the, the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains. And he led them. And they said to him, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. And so they went down. They seized the, the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at the time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, and not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now, here, here's the thing that's so important. Number four, and that is that faith changes my perspective. It changes my perspective. I want you to think about something. What happened? The, what, I mean, from the time that Ehud killed Eglon to the time that he blew the trumpet and said, God's delivered him. I mean, did anything happen? Did, did Moab suddenly lose troops? No. Did Israel suddenly gain troops? No. Nothing changed except their faith grew. They saw that if Ehud could find a way to get to the king and kill him, that maybe that was a sign that God was going to deliver them into their hand. And that God had sent them a deliverer. You see, my friends, lots of us want our faith to grow, but can I share this with you? There's one way. It's the sword. The Bible says this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Lots of us are praying that our situation would change. And maybe it isn't going to change until we start believing God and stepping out in faith. We're praying for things to get better, and they don't get better. And I can promise you that during the 18 years that Moab was oppressing the people of Israel, people prayed for there to be a deliverer, and listen, and and for a better life to happen to them. But it didn't happen until they turned their backs on the gods that they were serving, turned back to the true and living God, and repented and cried out to God and said, God, we really want you to work. And then God sent them a deliverer to show them that everything was possible, that anything was possible, if you believe. You see, what this story teaches us is that you and I have everything that we need to do God's will. But sometimes we're praying and asking and wondering and hoping and making excuses and saying, well, if God would do this and this and this, then maybe I'd do it. No, the question is, you have everything that you need 
to do God's will. The Bible says that he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3 says. And so if that's really the issue, then the issue is, will you do it? Will you step out in faith? I mean, will you trust God? I, I know guys that are, are believers and they love Jesus and they feel like God's called them to start a, a business. And here's what they'll do. And, and, I, and here's what they'll say. They'll, Man, I took the classes and I got the training and I know that God's called me. And they're just waiting for something. And it's like, well, I'm, you know, this one thing's going to happen. What's going to happen? You've got the call. You've got the training. God's already told you to do it. I mean, so what, what, what are we waiting for? And the power of the Word of God is that we can read it. Our faith can be built up and we can say, if God did it for them, then I know that He can do it for me. Because the Bible says that Elijah was a man just like us. That if he, caused, he prayed and it didn't rain, then maybe I can pray and God could do something amazing as well. I'm going to show you one last verse and then we're done. In verse 31 it says this, After him, that is Ehud, Shamgar the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, he also delivered Israel. Now here's the last thing that I I want to share with you about someone who's used by God mightily. That is that godliness inspires others to be godly. It inspires others to be godly. Now let me just review for just a moment. For those of you that maybe haven't been following along carefully, let me just recap what's happened. Here we go. Um, Israel is serving other gods. See, that's another god. And then check out what happens. God says, take my chosen people, Eglon, with your giant chicken bone. And then what happens is they have to serve the Moabites for 18 years. Then God raises up a deliverer, a guy named Ehud. Then Ehud brings the tribute to Eglon, as you'll see here. As you'll see here, I have a message from God for you, chubby. And then what happens is he stabs him and then Eglon starts to bleed. Then... Ehud escapes, then he's dead, and he didn't even get to eat his chicken bone. And then uh, Ehud comes back and says, hey, the God's delivered the Moabites into your hands. Then they start an army, and interestingly enough, they all look like Jedi. Um, and, uh, so, and then they wipe out all of the Moabites, who apparently look like these weird sailors from somewhere. And, um, and then... Now we have Shamgar who kills a bunch of people with an ox goad. Now, we'll stop it there. Now, here's the thing. We can take that off. Um, now, here's the thing. So if you, if you weren't caught up, now you're totally caught up. You say, why didn't you just do that in the beginning? We save ourselves a lot of time. Because I want to tell you about the lady on the plane. That's why. Um, so, but here's the thing. That, here, here's what I love about Ehud. The thing that I love about Ehud is that he inspired people to use whatever they had to serve God. He inspires an entire generation of southpaws. In fact, in your notes, in, in Judges chapter 20, it says along, among these soldiers there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. He inspires guys to use whatever it is that is in their hand, and he takes this guy named Shamgar, and he says, if, this, if God could use this left-handed guy, then he can use me. Now, what is an ox goad? Let me just show you right here real quick. An ox goad is about an 8 to 10 foot pole that is real sharp at the end. And it's used to motivate oxen that have decided that this is a good time to rest. And you as the owner have decided this is not a good time to rest. You kind of poke them a little bit on the backside to get them to move. Well, Shamgar apparently at one time gets into a rumble with about 600 Philistines. And he wipes all of them out. Now, if you've been here for a while... 
You know that whenever we look at a story like this, we'll look at what the name of the, of the person means. Because many times um, the, in the scriptures, the name actually unlocks for us some of the character of the person. The name Ehud means united. That shouldn't surprise us because he, he kills Eglon and unites the people and then they defeat the Moabites. Shamgar is a name that means stranger. It's not a typical hero's name. Some commentators say that he may not even have been Jewish, but he still delivered the Jewish people. But the issue really is this, is that God took a regular person. God took whatever was in his hand of a person who wanted to be used by him and saved Israel. In the book of Judges, chapter 5, there's a song that's sung by a woman named Deborah. And Deborah sings this. She says, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned and travelers took to the winding paths. And apparently what had happened is that the Philistines were harassing people to the point where they couldn't even use the major roads anymore. And then here's what happened is that God raises up Shamgar and says, listen, people should not be afraid to go into the streets. And then what takes place is God raises up Shamgar. He wipes out these Philistines and then safety is restored. You see, throughout the Bible, God's been asking the question, what's in your hand? He asked Moses the question, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, then why don't you go see Pharaoh, throw it on the ground, and we'll turn it into a snake. You take that staff and you put it in the Nile and it'll turn to blood. You take what's in your hand, submit it to me, God says, and we'll do something with it. He asked David, what's in your hand? He says, I've got a sling and five stones. And God says, well, if that's the case, let's go kill a giant with it. Jesus asks these fishermen, he says, what's in your hand? They said, we've got some nets, we're fishermen. He says, why don't you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and you will turn the world upside down for the sake of the gospel. Jesus asks this little kid, what's in your hand? And he brings to Jesus these five little pieces of bread and two little sardines. He says, it's my lunch. And he says, well, why don't you give it to me? What's in your hand? And we'll feed 5,000 people with it. You see, here's the point. Too often we're looking for God to turn us into different people so that he can use us. And my friends, that's not the way that it works. You come to Jesus and here's what's going to happen. He will transform your mind, the Bible says. He will develop your character and deepen your spiritual understanding. But he will never stop asking what's in your hand. Because the thing that he's put in your hand many times naturally or supernaturally is the thing that he has put there for the purpose of you serving him. So really the question comes down to, will you allow him to use you? Because he wants to use you. Will you allow yourself to be used by God to take what's in your hand and watch God do the impossible with it? When you submit it to him and say, God, this is not mine, it's yours. Let's pray together. And Father, we want to thank you for that, that very thing. That we take what's in our hand and give it to you. And you're able to turn it into something amazing, earth-shattering and life-changing. And so, God, we pray for every single one of us here that we would not take our gift and hide it under a basket or hide it under a lamp, but instead that we would submit it to you, draw it to you, give it to you to see how you can do something amazing with it. In Jesus' name. Amen.